Please be seated. I invite you to Acts 8. The 8th chapter of Acts. As we continue our series through this great book. Some years ago, a young woman with a restless soul left her extended family in Arkansas to travel the world. Her journeys took her into vastly different cultures and climates and topographies, as well as through many dangers, toils, and snares. And seasoned by her wanderings and profoundly changed by experiences she could not possibly communicate with her family, she returned to her kinfolk in Arkansas. Hearing the report of her global wanderings, one relative asked, why on earth anyone would ever care to leave Arkansas? Indeed, for many, home is simply the best place on earth, isn't it? Family ties and ethnic and cultural familiarities yield a thousand sacred sweets. Souls rooted in the solid ground of home and family have much for which to thank God. And yet, yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should possess a certain sacred restlessness that lifts our eyes with longing past our own home and familiarity and fit us with global interests. Despite the natural comforts of home, we realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended for every tribe and tongue, and that God has ordained the rule of Jesus to extend across every inch of this planet. We've sung of that today. Isaiah 49 and verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, says the Lord. Isaiah 45 and verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, as we work our way through this book, we remember that theme verse, that significant verse. You, you Jews, you followers of Christ, you disciples, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We know the response, the response that has reached us here. There are those who hear this message of Christ and respond and are united with the body of Christ. They take their places in the family of God. Brothers and sisters united in this one body by the good news of Jesus Christ and by the cleansing and filling of the Holy Spirit of God. So as we think what makes God's heart beat for this world, we simply are not thinking biblically. We do not possess the zeal of Jesus. We do not truly love God if we are not becoming global-oriented believers who long for every tribe and nation to hear the Gospel, and who embrace kinship then with those genuine brothers and sisters in Christ across every physical and ethnic and social and physical divide. We must appreciate the securities of our church and the securities of our families as well as the place on earth that God has sovereignly permitted us to call home for now. 
But we must never get so cozy here that we lose sight of our identity as the people of God scattered across the planet whose teeming masses are evangelistically ripe for harvest. Not that all those people are safe. As we witnessed here in Acts chapter 7, the earnest, gracious, forthright proclamation of the gospel by Stephen ignited a firestorm of opposition, didn't it? Standing in the marketplace of ideas in Jerusalem, his belief that there is salvation in no other name but that of Jesus Christ so incensed the Jewish authorities that they stoned him to death. They killed the man. But ironically, the efforts of the Jewish Sanhedrin to suffocate the gospel by killing Stephen had all the effects of dousing a fire with gasoline. And we see that in these first three verses of chapter 8 as persecution scatters the Jerusalem church. First, that brief note that Saul approved of this execution. Saul of Tarsus is watching Stephen die, being illegally stoned, and he approves of this injustice. Saul despises the message that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and a risen Savior. Fueled in part by his zeal, we read on in verse 1 that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now it says they were all scattered here. Luke often uses this word as hyperbole. He doesn't mean every last single one of them were scattered. Clearly, there's a qualifying phrase here concerning the apostles. But there's other reasons to believe that he's not dealing with every single person in the church, but a lot of people. All kinds of Christians are scattered. We know, for instance, just as we come to Acts chapter 15, that there's a solid, thriving church in Jerusalem just a few years later. And there is historical evidence that this persecution particularly hit the Hellenistic Christians. Philip is one. We will meet him and Stephen is one who has just died. These Hellenistic Christians, it would appear that the persecution is directed particularly to them. Remember, they were a bit ethnically diverse or at least culturally diverse and not seen as really full Jews by the Hebraic Jews, not in the same sense. It seems that the persecution comes down upon them particularly and they are scattered away from Jerusalem. There is, as we note here in verse 1, this scattering. It's an important word. This persecution fairly forces the disciples into the second stage of Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. This is probably not according to plan. This isn't how these early believers thought that it would take place. But here they are now outside of Jerusalem, having left home and the securities that are there in Jerusalem. They now find themselves in a strange place, particularly one that is Philip. But before we read of him, there's an insertion here in verse 2, and then a follow-up on Saul. Devout men, verse 2, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The rabbis said it was, it was wrong to lament publicly anyone who had been stoned for blasphemy. So this was a brave and an even defiant act 
It is saying that we see ourselves as a fraternity of believers and we are willing to risk. They venerate this man by caring for his body. It's akin to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus bearing the body of Christ, asking for that body of one who had been executed as a heinous criminal. But back to the scattered, persecuted believers, we read in verse 3 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. With brutal cruelty, Saul labors to destroy the church. He even extends the dragnet to individual homes. I don't think he probably knocked on the door. He's coming in, storming it, and he's taking away, thinking culturally here, not of our culture so much, but of their culture. He's even dragging off women and taking them to prison because they name the name of Christ. Saul is adamant that this is a false doctrine this idea that Jesus is Messiah, and he's doing anything in his power to stamp it out. But while he is dragging people off to prison in Jerusalem, there's others fleeing for their life, and they're moving north into Samaria, into Judea first, and then into Samaria, and proclaiming the gospel there. The gospel spreads to Samaria, verses 4 and following. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That preaching means proclaiming. It is done by all of the believers to whom it pertains. It's not a preaching service or a church service, but they're proclaiming the message of Christ. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. It could be a city of Samaria or the most important city of Samaria. We won't get into that, but it's, it's not important which city particularly. But he proclaims to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, we can imagine. Going down from Jerusalem... Heading north into Samaria, Philip crosses a major cultural barrier. Now, more on that in just a moment, but right here, he has overcome a temptation as well, hasn't he? As have all of these believers. What is the natural temptation? These are human beings like you and me. They think very much the same way. You get run out of Jerusalem, you lose your home, and you go into Samaria, and isn't it going to be natural to think, I'm just going to kind of mind my business here. And not mind anybody else's business. I'm going to do what seems to be safe. But these witnesses, these scattered people, they're just like you and me. They've been run out of their homes. They go to this new place and they start with the audacity of speaking about Jesus the Messiah and some to Samaritans. The witness of these scattered believers reveals something. It reveals a courageous confidence in the absolute truth of the gospel, in the reigning authority of Jesus, and in the ultimate success of the mission. They believed this to the core of their being. John Stott has written, effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. And perhaps that's much of the mischief for us. There really isn't a strong sense of the truth of the gospel. 
There isn't an overwhelming sense that it is relevant to the day in which we live, this pluralistic world. This concept that there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Do we really believe it? And do we believe in the power of God to convert the lost? These people believed. They knew that the gospel wasn't a sales pitch that they had to deliver, but was indeed the work of Jesus Christ Himself through His Spirit, convicting sinners of sin, leading them to repentance and to salvation. As an example of this mission, we read here of this work in Samaria. As a Hellenistic Jew, Philip would have shared with Samaritans a degree of ostracism by the Hebraic Jews. However, Jews and Samaritans, having been said, were bitter enemies. And as Philip goes into this region, we need to realize that culturally. We don't catch that. It doesn't make sense to us in our setting. They hated each other, said very simply. The Judean Jews, to go back to the history just a little bit, they were carted off, remember, deported to Babylon. And while in Babylon, they worked very hard to be faithful to God and remain pure as people. They intermarried with one another. They came back to the land. But before they were taken captive, the northern tribes of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians. Some of those Jews were left behind, and other Assyrians and other types of people were placed in the land, and those individuals intermarried. They intermarried with Gentiles. So the Jews, the Judean Jews particularly, looked on Samaritans as detestable scum, people who betrayed God and intermarried with Gentiles, and formed a syncretistic worship. Remember, as we looked last week, how important the temple was to the Jews. Well, the Samaritans, even though they had Jewish roots, turned their back on the Jerusalem temple and built their own on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And what happened to that? The Judean Jewish patriot John Hyrcanus during the Maccabean conflict went up to Mount Gerizim and knocked the temple over. There wasn't a whole lot of love lost between these people. And his history, there's a history of atrocities that go back and forth between them. They hated each other. Yet Philip goes into Samaria and preaches the gospel, performs signs authenticating his message and revealing a people that are there bound by demonic powers and false ideas. And there's a response to the gospel. No one could have seen this coming. This is not what you would predict. You say, Philip, you're in bad shape. You walk into this place and you are in big trouble. You'll be eaten by Samaritan cannibals. But there's a response. They heed the word. And there is, verse 8, much joy. Of course there would be. Joy that overcomes natural divisions and unites their hearts as believers. All of the boundaries have broken down and they have joined this new family of God. One individual is picked out of this. Verse 9 is the man by the name of Simon. A man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now when we hear this, this man is not simply doing magic tricks like sleight of hand illusions and those kinds of things. He might have been using that as well in his repertoire. But Simon was in league with Satan. Simon swept the Samaritans off their feet, astounding them with dark spiritual powers they could only attribute to a God. And in Philip, the real deal has swept into town. And a showdown of spiritual powers is underway. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I mean, this message of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, this is shifting all categories, destroying a lot of others for the Samaritans. But they embrace the message. These are people enamored with the powers of darkness. But they're responding to the message of light in Jesus Christ. He is crucified for sins. He is risen with power and glory, Philip preaches. And they are baptized. They identify themselves through the message of this Jewish Christian with Jesus Christ. Amazing work of God that takes place here. Even Simon, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is the amazing Simon the magician. But he is amazed by the powerful works of Philip, undoubtedly because Simon realized that this truly is the great power of God on display This was a kind of power he had never seen before. So he follows Philip everywhere, as Witherington puts it. He follows him like a rock star wherever he goes and is utterly astonished by what he observes. He's probably a bit too taken with it all, amazed by the miracles and less amazed by grace. More on that later. But here the apostolic mission of confirmation is described to us at verse 14. So there's the response of the Samaritans, first the persecution in Jerusalem, the response of the Samaritans, and now there is a confirming work by the apostles Peter and John who come down from Jerusalem to see what's going on. Verse 14, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now let's stop for a moment and think. This is Peter and John, apostles, Jerusalem, Hebraic Jews. They come down, though north, down in elevation, north to Samaria. They see themselves and their understanding is that Israel is the chosen people of God. The people through whom God worked His saving grace. But now that Jesus Christ has come, now that through this people of Israel has come the Messiah... There's a great turning point that takes place here. The apostles are coming to Samaritans who have responded to the gospel, and the question is, is what has happened in Jerusalem with the baptism of the Spirit the same thing that's happening here in Samaria? They go to investigate. Is this the same work of God? Do people need to come to God in salvation by becoming Jews? Or is God directly through Christ saving Gentiles? 
It's a huge question, and it will take a long time to hammer out. Verse 15, They came down, we find, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That should trouble us to some degree. That is extraordinary. That is unusual. That doesn't seem to follow from what we've learned in the text of Acts itself. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter preaches to those who are hearing the gospel and says, upon repentance, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is belief in the message of Christ, repentant belief in that message that brings the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? These people have believed. They have been baptized. They have heard the Word of God with joy, and yet they've not received the baptism of the Spirit? What's going on? Well, there are those who would instruct us, Christians, who would say, what are you confused about? This is the way it's supposed to be. This is normative. This is a pattern that's set here. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, would go to this passage and would say, first things first, Baptism leading to conversion. Baptismal regeneration. Then, at a time later, hands will be placed upon you by the church and you will receive the Spirit of God. And so, with infant baptism, a child, in a sense, becomes a Christian, identified with the people of God, and then later at confirmation, there is a giving of the Spirit and a confirmation that this person is really God's child we would take that to be reading a little bit into this text, of course, but there are those who would say this is normative. This is the way it's supposed to be. Conversion, later, the Spirit. Many charismatics would say the very same thing. There is the baptism of the Spirit, which comes as a second blessing after conversion. And indeed, believers are to seek this ministry of the Spirit, this gift of the Spirit. God saves those who respond in faith to the Gospel, but He only later gives the gift of the Spirit to those who seek it. And the evidence that you've received it generally for many of them is speaking in tongues. Not for all, but for most. A great portion of charismatic thinkers. I think there's a third route here, and one that we would hold as a church. And that is to read this section as a unique situation. And the book of Acts itself indicates this to us, doesn't it? Very soon, in chapter 10, verse 44, the Spirit will baptize Gentiles before anybody knows they even believe. They haven't been baptized physically, But while they're listening to the message of Christ, they're baptized by the Spirit of God. So which is it? If we look for a pattern here, we're really going to struggle. Because we see both and. We see some baptized by the Spirit upon repentance and faith. And we see these where there's a gap of time. I think the key is to realize that Acts is, to some degree, a transitional book. The church is getting its wheels under it. And there are some things that God uniquely twists in a certain way to help the church get its wheels under it. And this is one of those places. Yes, normally, Acts 2 and verse 38, 
In fact, normally for Gentiles, Acts 10 and verse 44, the Spirit of God washes us clean as we respond to the gospel of Christ and are saved. I won't dice up timing and all of that, but generally that is the work that the Spirit of God does. But here it appears that God withholds this normal work of the Spirit. He withholds it uniquely in this situation so that the point would be demonstrated that salvation through response to the saving grace of Jesus does not come by inclusion in Israel. But that what takes place among Israelites in Jerusalem is precisely what takes place here among the Samaritans. So as the followers of Jesus went into Jerusalem and waited for the baptism of the Spirit. So here in Samaria, these who respond in faith and are believers wait for this unique work of the baptism of the Spirit. It is a major step in the advance of the Gospel. It means that Gentiles will come to God, not through Israel, but will go straight through Christ. And as these apostles come and lay their hands on these individuals, that is made very clear. The evidence of the Spirit that they had been Spirit-baptized is not indicated to us. We would assume that it is probably a speaking in tongues or some type of miraculous evidence. But at any rate, the apostles know that these Samaritans have received the Spirit of God as a gift of God. Now, verse 18, back to Simon. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Curtis Vaughn as well said, Simon's entire interest in Christianity was professional. He was a magician. And here was the greatest power he had ever witnessed. So he sends in his order form and says, give me a piece. I'll buy it at high price. Now many people are trying to be really gracious with Simon here and to say all he's asking for is the power to convey the Spirit of God. But the indication from what Peter says that follows is that he doesn't have the Spirit of God. For Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And let us stop, just pause for a moment, and make clear here, upon the authority of Peter's word, genuine divine power can never be purchased. And genuine divine power can never be marketed. We can market the church. We cannot market the gospel. It's not for sale. No one will ever buy their way to God in any way, shape, or form. Spirit filling is a gift from God and nothing short of utter dependence upon His mercy will secure it. Marketing can grow a church. Marketing cannot save anybody. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only the Spirit of God can grow the true church of Jesus Christ. Simon's question reveals that he has no clue of the saving power of God. He wants to wield it so that he has power and importance and influence. 
it would be indicated to us then when Peter says that you could obtain the gift of God, he means more than simply being able to lay his hands on others. It makes us question whether he has that gift at all. Another thing here in verse 20 is that word perish. Peter is not very gentle here, is he? He is a straight shooter. He tells Simon exactly what he needs to hear, and that is a word of grace in its own way. But he says, may it perish with you. The word perish is often translated, may it go to perdition with you. It is a reference to destruction away from God. May your silver perish with you in hell, is essentially what Peter says. It's a bold, strong word meant to shake Simon to the core. In verse 21, he says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon does not have the Spirit of God. Dennis Johnson writes, In treating God's grace as a business commodity, Simon shows himself to be not a divine power, as he was acclaimed, but an enemy of the omnipotent Lord. Peter's words of indictment echo Old Testament language. And that's a key thought here. This language flows from Old Testament texts, which indicates some of Peter's spirit here. Linking Simon's sin to the infidelity that threatened Israel's relationship to God. All of the terms that he uses. May your money perish with you. May it go to perdition with you. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. You're not right before God. These are all Old Testament concepts that speak to someone who thinks they belong to God but who is in rebellion against Him. But again, Peter's words are laced with hope. Verse 22, repent, therefore. There's still hope, Simon. Repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're in the shackles of sin. Simon is separated from God and he needs to repent. We have to stop here and say, now wait a minute, what about verse 13? The text of Scripture says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, this man, amazed by the power of God, has believed and has been baptized. Now we would need to take that at face value and say that this man is a believer in Christ. He has truly been converted. We would need to say that if the Bible always used the word believe of saving faith. But it does not. John chapter 2 and verse 21, if you'd turn there just briefly. The word believe in the New Testament is often used with a degree of flexibility. There are times when there is no question belief means a person is truly converted. But there are other times when belief is used a little more broadly and more loosely. John chapter 2 And verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Here are these many who have believed. Now there are those before in verses 21, 22, who believe in truth, but there are these many who believed because they saw the signs he was doing, verse 23, and he did not entrust himself to them. It doesn't sound like John 10, does it? My sheep hear my voice. I won't lose any of them. They will come to me. Jesus did not entrust himself to some who believed. More evidence in John chapter 8 and verse 31. John chapter 8 and verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice the if there. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's talking to those who have believed. But now, in discussion with these same people, we drop down to verse 44, where he says, You are of your father, the devil. They haven't lost their salvation during Jesus' discussion with them. They had believed, in one sense of the word believe, but they are yet of their father, the devil. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. These individuals who believed were willing to kill Jesus. And so I think on the authority of what we find here in John, we have reason to believe, as we go back to Acts chapter 8, that Simon was not a genuine believer He was enamored with the gospel. He believed its essential content, but he was not regenerate. The bottom line was that he was shackled in sin and he needed to repent. We've got to consider ourselves here. Because it is very conceivable that we may, in like manner, believe without saving power. We have the content of the Gospel. We may believe, in fact, that it's true. That God has done what He says in His Word He has done. As I mentioned last week, we're playing with all the right pieces. But is our belief genuine? Is it more than intellectual assent to the rightness of the plan of God in Christ? Is it true conversion. I think for Simon, there's tremendous reasons to believe that this man was separated from Christ. And verse 24 is very confirming in that conclusion, though that's not the point of the passage. But Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. As sincere as Simon may have been here, his angst resembles the tears of Esau who wept for the consequences of sin but did not repent. The one thing Simon does not do in this passage is repent. Rather than pray to God and turn from his sin, he asks the apostles to pray for him and to get him out of trouble. There's no record that they prayed any such prayer, and there's no possibility that such a prayer would ultimately save Simon. Apostles don't pray people to conversion. People must repent and believe in the Gospel, and there's no indication that Simon did that in truth. 
He needed to admit his sin. He needed to turn from it. And he did not. He knew the truth. He consented to the truth. He knew the power of God. Never does it say that he repents. And if church history is to guide us at all here, there are those writing a mere 40 years later, 50 years later from this time or so, who said that Simon was the leader of an integrationist movement taking heretical ideas from the fallen world and striving to mix them together with Christian truth. We don't know for sure if it's the same Simon. But there are those who lived in Samaria who claim that this was the man, that he became a heretic in the ancient church. Well, again, the text really doesn't address Simon's salvation or lostness directly, and that's really part of the point. Everyone must repent and believe. That belief, its genuineness, is tested by one's life over time. All that Peter can say here is, from everything that I can see, your money and you are on a grease slide going toward hell. And you better turn. To think that you can purchase the power of God with money indicates that you don't know anything about the power of God. So there's no repentance, only a rebuke, and a man who's afraid. Verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We're really supposed to get that. The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem. Now Peter and John work their way back to Jerusalem. And what do they say? Well, Philip, this Hellenist, really got in with the Samaritans. It went really well. Let's just leave things alone here and head back to Jerusalem. No, they, as Hebraic Jews, go into Samaritan villages and start telling them that Christ is the only way of salvation. This is a confidence and a boldness that cannot come from within. This isn't personality here. This is a confidence in the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And John is doing this. You remember John? It wasn't so long ago that Jesus was working His way through Samaria and the villages would not accept Him because He was heading to Jerusalem. And what did John say? Let's call down fire on them right now. Let's just get rid of the whole lot and be over with all the troubles we have with Samaritans. Torch them, Jesus! That was John's view. Now that same man who has seen the risen Christ, is going into Samaritan villages as a Hebraic Jew and is saying, let me tell you about Jesus. The gospel's breaking down barriers. Amazing barriers. And this passage, if we have the heart of God, must thrill us. The gospel overcoming these racial, ethnic, social barriers, cultural barriers. It should thrill us. The net of the Gospel is widening. It's come off the hill in Jerusalem and it's come into fallen, dark Samaria and there are people who are responding in faith. Jesus told His disciples, you're going to be fishing for souls. And here the net has widened to include the Samaritans. cannot but thrill our souls if we understand what God is doing. And it must lead us to worship. In fact, we come to worship this day and as we do every Lord's Day, 
as an evidence that the message has left the hill. That it's come down to Samaria, to Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Here we are today in this frozen tundra, buried smack dab in the middle of the North American continent, half a world away from Jerusalem, speaking English. And here we are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. His gospel is conquering all kinds of barriers. The gates of hell itself cannot stand against it. And we gather here as those who once blasphemed, who have been conquered by this message of salvation in Jesus. And having received that message, this passage certainly calls us also to risk taking for the glory of God. To reaching out across boundaries. We need to get out of our little Christian Arkansas. Our Christian Minneapolis, Twin Cities area. And to reach out and to know that we can trust the gospel to do its work. It's not safe work. Nobody's ever saying it's safe. But it's divine work. God conquers hearts. And we would insist, I think, to a person as a church, we have, there's no racist agenda here in any way, shape, or form. We don't appreciate that. We don't support it. Yet, how often do we reach out past our own comfort zone, socially, economically, culturally? might be the fact that this passage really stirs us a little bit to think, you know, I really am kind of tied in to my comfort zone. Do we really have a global mindset? If we have a global mindset, it's not simply an interest that missions will continue through the world and people who've never heard will hear, but it leads us to cross over boundaries that we don't feel all that safe crossing over into cultures and into contexts that are difficult. And I think there is an aversion on our part, probably, in some sense, to say, I'm going to treat people differently. But maybe we need to rethink that a little bit. To say, maybe we do need to make concerted efforts, particularly with people who are very much unlike us. Where else can the Gospel more gloriously shine than when we break down the barriers that culture and society and godless people erect all over the place and share the Gospel of Christ to those who are not like us. Maybe we need to hop those barriers purposefully because if we just live where we are in our comfort zone, it stays pretty solidified to people who are just like us. By nature, we stick with our own. But when we come to sense the heartbeat of Christ and to follow the plan of God, we become citizens of the world. We may love our ethnic roots. We may love the securities of our land and of our place. But if we're going to really tap into the restless heart of Jesus, we're going to get out of Arkansas. I don't mean necessarily physically, but we're going to cross the boundaries. We're going to become citizens of the world who, Dennis Johnson says so well, are made, not born. They're remade as their thoughts and minds and focus is transformed by Jesus' purpose, which is not to reach just our little area. It's to reach every tongue and tribe 
on this planet. May we reach past those barriers and have a global mindset. Certainly it means a love for global mission. We should care when missionaries come. We should care when the letters come. We should care when we see sources that tell us about how the work is going. It's the reputation of Christ. It's the glory of His name that's being proclaimed in places where it's not held high. We should care about that because we care about the name of Christ. But listen, we need to care about the area right where we are as well. In our neighborhood, you don't really even have to leave the neighborhood, do you? Say over the years and the outreach that we've had here in this neighborhood, I think I've heard somewhere, I don't know, I've thought through it, maybe eight to ten languages spoken right here in our building and in our parking lot because it's spoken in our neighborhood right here. You don't have to go to the other ends of the world, but you do have to think outside your box. We've got to reach into places where we would not normally go, and it's exciting to be there. Because you know only God can help you here. It's one reason I love to minister in a jail setting. There's a lot of people there who come from backgrounds very much like mine. But there's an awful lot of them who come from backgrounds I can't even begin to understand. And it's thrilling to see God talk to somebody through your words that you couldn't possibly relate to on any other level. Where's the world you could break into? Who are the people where there's natural, cultural, social boundaries that just say to everybody like you, don't go there. Go there. Go there. And watch the Gospel work. I'm not saying it's safe. I'm saying go there and trust the work of God. To use an analogy, this is a sort of kingdom building. I think of the Roman Empire, which had a real problem that it didn't really recognize at first, but the Roman Empire had an inherent problem from the beginning in that it was a parasite. As the boundaries of Rome began to expand, they didn't have a problem with different ethnicities and different religions and different peoples. They'll take anybody in that would feed them. Your land becomes our land, we live off of it, and the boundaries just kept expanding. The empire was growing. There was great power and authority and great glory in this world by the Roman Empire. But what happened is it extended itself too far. Pretty soon it could not manage the borders, and it fell apart. Morally, certainly, contributing to that, but also just overextended. It fell apart. It caved in. And America's history, by the way, is tracking quite closely with that whole story. But listen, we're not serving that kind of a kingdom. When the gospel of Jesus Christ expands, it breaks down barriers. Not in a way that weakens it, but in a way that strengthens it. We are taking a message that crosses all boundaries and is to stretch to every corner of this world. 
And in that stretching and expanding, it will never be defeated. It will grow only stronger until Jesus Christ rules on this planet over every inch. He rules now over every inch as we've sung earlier today. But there is a physical, acknowledged rule that is yet to come. And it will. We carry the message of Christ for the nations, for every nation. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And when we take that message, never forget it. We do not shame people. We do not despise people. We do not beat them down to tell them we're smarter than you. What we do is we deliver them from the shackles of bondage. The demonic bondage that holds anyone who is outside of Christ in this culture or any other. And we deliver to them a message that will fill their hearts with joy. And they will join us counterculturally in their setting to sing the praises of Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. That's our mission. Are we crossing those boundaries? Are we trusting the Gospel? Do we really believe in the power of the Spirit of God to transform lives? Let's continue to take that message and join this process. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other parts of the earth. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, there may be a Simon among us. Someone who venerates and on some level believes the message of the Gospel, but who is separated from You. Who has not been converted, born again, baptized by the Spirit. Father, I don't know who that is, who those people might be among us, if there's any single person in that category, I pray that you would humble that soul and bring that one to know you as Savior today. It's my humble request. According to your will and purposes, please work today. For today is the day of salvation. I ask, Father, that you would bring that conviction and that understanding. I pray for those of us who know you, Lord, what rebuke is in this passage and what great joy and confidence. May we trust Your purposes and take this message of Jesus wherever You'll lead us. In our prayers throughout the whole world. In our giving throughout various places in this world. And here in our witness to our neighbors and friends to those that we contact passing by in this world. God, forgive us for not trusting Your power. Forgive us for not being faithful and courageous as Your witnesses. But Father, I pray as well, encourage our hearts and provide opportunities that we won't miss. Open doors and help us to go through them. And Lord, where there are cultural and social boundaries, teach us to bang them down with the Gospel. To not fear. To leave our comfort zones. To leave our Christian ghettos. And to realize and live 
as if the gospel is for the world. Make us global believers as Jesus was. In his name we pray. Amen.